Welcome. You have tuned into a world of wit and weirdness, of adventure and terror, of stories from the public domain and my demented brain. Channel AB3 is on the air. Hello and welcome to the 16th transmission of the Channel AB3 podcast. Today's episode will have two stories written by yours truly. The first is a strange little bit of what they call folk horror nowadays, and it's called How I Wonder What You Are. It is read by the always amazing Daniel C. Johnson, who always makes my weirdest stuff sound like spun gold. And trust me, stuff's about to get really weird. How I Wonder What You Are Written by Al Bruno III Narrated by Daniel C. Johnson I'll know the time is right when the howling begins. It will be after sundown, of course. The mothers and fathers of Jepson only scream after sundown and only on the clearest of nights. There is no town of Jepson listed on any map. Even in its heyday of the 1940s, it was too small to be worthy of notice. It's nothing more than a collection of buildings at the end of a dead-end road. On one side, it is bordered by long, untended cornfields. On the other, the swampy remains of Lake Campbell. The most noticeable of the town's buildings is a red-brick edifice with a wide, domed roof of fractured glass. The rest is just barns and single-story homes. Along the border of the swamp is row after row of barbed wire and bear traps. I'll let them scream for an hour or so. Let them become tired. Even now, it amazes me how I had learned to pick out the individual voices in the cacophony. The widow Toth tires easily, but the Garrets will be at it until dawn. And what will I be doing while every able-bodied adult is on the rooftops? I'll be slipping these pages into this mason jar and sealing its lid in place with the wax from a melted crayon. The children of Jepson won't miss just one, especially not purple. Twenty-five years ago, a calamity befell the town of Jepson. The authorities blamed it all on the after-effects of an experimental insecticide. But the old book the town elders read from every Sunday said otherwise. It told the citizens of Jepson that a curse was carried by those twinkling dots in the sky. A malevolence traveling at 186,000 miles per second that would twist their children into nightmares should a glint of it ever touch their skin. That is why they scream at the starlight, hating it, cursing it, raging at it. You can't see what their children have become and not feel the same way. The changes are heartbreaking and horrifying all at once. But after you spend time with them, you feel differently. There is mockery in the misset eyes that peer from those mollified skulls. They know secrets 
On quiet, cloudy nights, I would put my ear to one family's basement door or another and hear them murmuring and giggling as they writhe in their basement styes. I think of their weeping mouths and soft teeth and remember that day half a decade ago. The ill-advised shortcut out along the neglected County Road 99. I remember approaching the train bridge and seriously considering turning around. It looked decades out of repair, and I half suspected it would collapse as I passed under it. But I didn't turn back. My ego wouldn't let me. I was right, and the road was wrong. So I drove under the train bridge, momentarily marveling at the strange and elaborate graffiti that covered it. I was just past the structure when a small, bent figure ran out from the long grass. The sounds are what I really remember. The squeal of the brakes, the thud of the body on the hood of my car, the thick crack of laminated glass. I would later learn the name of the child I had hit was Julius McCarty, but all I knew then was that there was an emaciated, bloodied shape lying halfway through my windshield. Human instinct made me reach out to see if the little boy was alive. When my fingers brushed his skin, he twisted around to face me. His mouth lashed out proboscis-like and nuzzled into the flesh of my arm. Pain bristled out from where the boy had latched onto me. I screamed, thrashed. I shoved the car door open and tumbled out onto the asphalt. The boy coughed once and died. At first, the wound held all my attention. How could it not? I had expected to see torn flesh and blood. But instead, the boy's distended mouth had left behind a cluster of thick, festering ulcerations. But then, I became aware of the men making their way out of the tall grass. These were the fathers of Jepson, and I understood immediately what had happened. They had brought everything they might need to bring one of their children back home to its basement. Rope, bandages, and cudgels. It was also everything they needed to make a captive of me. They dragged me away from the accident site, through the tall grass and over the collapsed remains of a chain-link fence, to leave me in the care of the mothers of Jepson. Those gaunt women had cudgels of their own, and I was a mass of bruises and welts by the time the hole in the earth had been made to their standards. The menfolk returned carrying the child wrapped in a linen shroud. They dropped it roughly into the ground. There were no ceremonies, tears, or headstone. It was well after dark by the time I had filled the grave back in. Now, here it is years later and I've had to dig a dozen more graves. One by one, the mothers and fathers are dying out. It's always a surprise when it happens. Every mother and father of Jepson is withered and white-haired, but every year, a few more die in their sleep, or at work in the fields, or at prayer in their red-brick observatory. The children are dying too, 
Not a one has ever lived past seventeen. One by one, they waste away. Except, of course, for the occasional accident, like the one that trapped me here. Despite this curse that had befallen them, the people of Jepson continue to reproduce. Each mother convinced that this time she will give birth to the great Redeemer, as foretold in the old book. Each time they fail, and each time the result is locked away in its family's basement. You can't imagine those basements. The smell of rotten meat, the ankle-deep fecal matter, and the perfectly clean toys. They draw equations on the walls. Gold and silver crayons are their preferred color. Every Tuesday I have to visit each of those cellars and scrub the theorems and postulations away. The youngest of the children is a newborn, still angry from the womb. The oldest is seventeen and nearly rotted away. No matter the age, they all taunt me as I work, sometimes with bites, sometimes with maledictions. Both have left unimaginable scars. So many scars now. I'm marked. I could never walk among the people I'd known before. They'd refuse to recognize me and insist I was a stranger. The Widow Toth says this is my penance for the death of Julius McCarty. She even went so far as to cite chapter and verse on the subject from the old book itself. The mothers and fathers of Jepson base every aspect of their lives on that thick volume of prophecies and homilies. I wonder if anyone will notice me leaving. I doubt it. Even when they're not screaming their heads off at long-dead sons, they barely notice my comings and goings. As I said before, the mothers and fathers of Jepson have become so sure of me. Some families think I've become a true believer. The rest think the cinder block chained to my ankle is enough to keep me in my place. I don't know who you are or when you'll find this message. My only hope is that you will believe me. If you do, please bring this document to the proper authorities. Don't let my death be for nothing. I go to the bottom of the swamp with two regrets. One is that I won't be there when the town of Jepson is discovered and burned to the ground. The other is that six months ago, I accepted Father Garrett's invitation to join in their celebrations. I went willingly with them to the old brick observatory. I prayed with them. I danced with them. I partook in all of their debasements. And for a little while, perhaps an hour, I was happy. They even asked me to give a reading from the old book. I eagerly stepped up to the podium and began flipping through the thick volume. Everyone waited for me to choose a passage and speak. But all I did was shake and weep at what I beheld. My knees buckled, 
my mind shut down. I had to be carried out and put to bed. You see, the old book was blank from cover to cover. You are even holding some of those pages in your hands now. I used them to write my story. You've been listening to How I Wonder What You Are, written by Al Bruno III, narrated by Daniel C. Johnson. Ah yes, how does the old song go? Give me some of that old-time religion. That story, by the way, was previously adapted by the No Sleep Podcast. They did an amazing job as well. And if you don't listen to the No Sleep Podcast, believe me, you should. They do amazing, amazing work. And speaking of amazing work, let's go to a classic episode from my old night blogger podcast called Innocent When You Dream. You don't have to believe the stories on my blog. You can dismiss them as good hallucinations or bad fiction if you want to, but they're all true. The darkness was never empty. There are things that wait for the innocent and unwary to turn their backs. What is it you think I'm talking about here? Ghosts? Vampires? Ghouls? If only it were that simple. The creatures of the night are still out there, but they're not shadowing your every footstep. They just check your status updates from the comfort of their tombs. All I ever wanted was to be a do-it-yourself style reporter, but more often than I like, I find myself becoming part of my stories. It turns out gods and monsters don't like their secrets getting out any more than your standard politician or celebrity. We all know how this is going to turn out in the end. I'm already long overdue for jail, the loony bin, or a guest of honor spot at a monster buffet. But until that fateful day, I'm not going to back down or give up. My name is Brian Foster, and some people call me the Night Blogger. Innocent When You Dream, a Night Blogger bonus episode. The place, a long unoccupied house near Kalamazoo University. A slouching stone shape with warning signs plastered on every boarded up window. The time, not that long ago. Long enough for the building to have been constructed with good old-fashioned American asbestos, but not so long ago that people were still allowed to work there. It was one of the workmen sent to clear out said building that found the composition book I'm holding in my hands right now. Good thing he's a friend of mine and a fellow seeker of the unknown. He goes by the name of Nino Savant and the most notable things about him were his manly beard and his lifelong quest to prove the existence of the supernatural. 
You see, that was why he took any and every kind of job that gave him access to the creepiest buildings Michigan has to offer. I gotta give him credit. A decade in the game and he never once got arrested for trespassing. Genius idea. Wish I'd thought of it. From day one on the job, Nino felt the hairs on the back of his neck prickle. And he wasn't the only one that sensed something was wrong with the place. Other members of the asbestos removal team complained of headaches and nausea. More than a few men quit outright, insisting that it wasn't safe to be there. That the whole structure was going to come crashing down on them. It didn't lean right. These are Nino's words, not mine. He went on to explain that every building has a bit of a lean to it. No matter how well built a structure is, gravity and the elements are going to have their way with it. Roofs sag, foundations crack, floors bend and bubble. And if that building is neglected, the decay sets in all the faster. The poisoned brownstone in downtown Kalamazoo was no different. Yet it was different. Each room seemed to twist in its own direction. The walls and ceilings were no better. They left the workmen feeling as though they were lurching drunkenly through some carnival funhouse. Even the sunlight that crept in through the boarded up windows shone at all the wrong angles. The day that Nino Savant discovered a scrapyard diary, he'd wandered off from his seven-man crew. He'd spent all morning telling his co-workers that he might have some kind of stomach bug. It was a total lie, but it's damn easy to lie when you're wearing a hood, goggles, and a respirator mask. He wandered to an untouched wing of the house and pulled the ghost-hunting gigas he'd hidden inside of his flash-spun, high-density polyethylene coveralls. He slowly tracked his way from the study to the kitchen and back again. None of his tools picked up anything. Not his EMP meter or his EVP recorder. Even his spirit box was useless. None of it made any sense. There were dozens of reports from passers-by of sounds coming from within this building. Strange vocalizations that haunted the dreams of anyone that heard them. Especially those of children. It was on his third trip from the kitchen to the study that the floor gave away beneath him, and he tumbled ass over tea kettle down a hidden stairway to an equally hidden basement. He lay there for a time, his neck bent at an uncomfortable angle, his legs splayed against the wooden door at the bottom of the stairs. The only good thing about his aching back and pounding skull was that it proved he wasn't dead or paralyzed. Once Nino got back to his feet, he took a moment to examine where he had landed. There were thick, animal-like claw marks along the doorknob and bottom of the doorframe. He expected it to be locked, but it swung open easily, revealing a small room. There was a small bed against the corner with a nearby overturned chair. As he walked to the bed, something crunched under his boot. He looked down to see he had stepped on a painful-looking glass medical syringe. You know the kind you only see in horror movies these days? The bits of glass were stained with a tar-like substance. Nino bent down to touch it, but at the last minute thought better of it. Instead, he approached the corner of the room. The bed was a hospital design, at least fifty years out of date. The mattress had been torn open. Springs and stuffings laid everywhere. 
He almost didn't notice the small blue notebook shoved deep inside the mattress. It was the kind of thing you'd use to write your final exam essay. There wasn't enough light to read by in the hidden room, so he walked back to the top of the steps, sat down on his still sore behind, and started to read. When I was young, I was prone to fevers and nightmares, something that my doctors and my parents alike put down to a weak constitution and an overactive imagination. Even after I grew older and stronger, nightmares continued to plague me, nightmares that no drug could keep at bay, nightmares that frequently had me lashing out violently as I awoke. As you can imagine, when it came time for me to attend the university, I felt I had no choice but to live alone. The lack of companionship only aided my focus on all things academic. My grades were strong, and my instructors began to take special interest in my academic progress. Unfortunately, in my second year of studies, I began to experience incidents of sleepwalking and nocturnal violence. On four separate occasions, campus security had to apprehend me. This is how I came to the attention of Dr. Palatine, the university's leading expert on the subject of sleep disorders. Perhaps it would be more appropriate to say I was placed under her care and supervision. She was a pretty woman with iron gray hair that was streaked with red. She wore thick glasses and spoke with an Eastern European accent. Dr. Palatine explained to me that she had just returned from a long sabbatical where she had been conducting what she calls the purest research. She shared her theories with me about the nature of REM sleep and the source of dream imagery in the collective unconscious. She requested I keep a journal and a tape recorder at my bedside, but I must admit that the nature of my waking terrors left me with little clear or consistent information to impart. This lack of hard data to work from led her to invite me to live with her. I felt I had no choice but to accept. Dr. Palatine lived in a crumbling brownstone several miles from the college campus. She made a room for me in her basement so that my night terrors could be controlled and monitored with the greatest care. My first night and last night of observation began the ordeal that consumed my life. Dr. Palatine gave me a mild sedative and had me lie down on the cot she had prepared for me. She sat beside me in an uncomfortable looking rust-colored chair, pen and notepad in hand. Soon I was asleep, and soon I found myself in the most lucid dream I had ever known. In the dream, I found myself alone in the basement, staring up at the single bare light bulb that was the only illumination. Dr. Palatine and the rust-colored chair were gone. A strange feeling of dislocation washed over me as I stood and walked up the basement stairs. I found the cellar door had been locked from the outside but I felt no panic at this realization. What better way to curtail my nightly meanderings than a locked door? I rapped on the door and called for Dr. Palatine. When there was no answer, I began to knock louder and louder. 
I called her name over and over, but there was no answer. The feeling of dislocation grew stronger, and in my mind's eye, I saw myself beating at the door in ever-growing panic. I looked so small, like a forgotten child. Without warning, the basement door rattled on its hinges, as though something had been thrown against it. Fingers scrabbled and grabbed through the inch-wide gap between the bottom of the doorframe and the floor. They were thin and covered with thick tufts of red hair. They scratched and scraped. Even now, you might assume that this was all some sophomoric prank, but my every sense told me this was not the case. Whatever was on the other side of that door was bestial and twisted. The grasping of the fingers became more frantic, as though it were searching for something precious that was just out of reach. It was as though my every childhood nightmare was coming true. Hadn't the fear of seeing this very personal incubus driven me to night terrors and fugues? I screamed at it. The claw-like hand retreated. There was a moment when I thought it was about to retreat, but then it began to sing. I cannot describe that voice. I don't know if that voice can be described. All I can say is that the sound that reached my ears was a loathsome crooning. An image arose to my mind, that of the creature burbling nonsense, trying to lull the pink, quivering shape at its breast to sleep. Desperate to escape that sound, I backed away only to lose my footing. I tumbled down the stairs, striking my head and plunging my mind into merciful, mindless darkness. How long was it until I awoke again? I cannot say, but I do know that I blinked my eyes to see the basement door wide open. It took me some time to find the courage to mount the stairs, but when I did, I found myself in a barren house. Of Dr. Palatine, there was no trace. Not only had she disappeared from her home, she had also vanished from all university records. All my professors insisted there was no Dr. Palatine. There had never been a Dr. Palatine. The more I told my story, the more I became a subject of derision and unease. I left the university in the middle of the semester, never to return. I found gainful employment far away from the university, but I had lost the capacity to dream, and with it I had lost all sense of certainty in the world around me. I began to fear that I no longer dreamt, because I was still asleep in Dr. Palatine's basement, that I had never awoken at all. I should note that I said Nino started to read the blue notebook, but when he got to the bottom of page two, the door at the bottom of the stairs slammed shut. Then something behind the door began to howl and warble. The sound was a wordless invitation. It settled into his gut and pulled. It warmed him like a fever. It promised bliss. Nino almost gave into it. But the same instinct of self-preservation that made him step away from the broken hypodermic told him to run. To run and never come back. Item. 
The old brownstone in Kalamazoo was eventually cleaned up and put on the market. It had plenty of buyers, but not a one of them ever stayed more than a year. It was demolished in 2012, and a parking lot was put in its place. Item. My research shows that the Kalamazoo University of Science and Medicine employed a Dr. Emily Palatine from October 30th of 1992 to December 29th of 2001. It turns out that she was implicated in the Rollison 7 scandal. She wasn't one of the actual seven, but there is no doubt she was a part of their bizarre experiments. Item. Shortly after his long-sought encounter with the supernatural, Nino Savant sold his ghost hunting equipment, shaved off his beard, and went into the family dry-cleaning business. Well, not everyone has the starch for this lifestyle. What? I'm allowed to make a joke once in a while. I have been so lucky to work with people like Brian Mancy and the Devil's Interval. So creative, so talented, so able to bring my crazy pseudo-fan fiction world to life. Sometimes I'm sorry I discontinued the series, but truth be told, at the time, I was just too overwhelmed by the stress of my wife Vanessa's death. The show was something she and I had worked on together. With her gone, I just couldn't go on with it. I couldn't go on with anything for a while, truth be told. But now that my life is falling back into place again, I think maybe a reboot's in order. I hope to bring the Night Blogger back as a regular feature on this podcast, along with adaptions of my other longer works. In many ways, I feel like this show has been evolving as I create it, and I appreciate all of you listening while that happens. Well, enough about that. I want to thank you all for listening. Be sure to tune in next episode when we're going to have another classic story from the public domain. And this is Channel AB3, signing off. How I Wonder What You Are was written by Al Bruno III. It was read by Daniel C. Johnson. The Night Blogger, Innocent When You Dream, was written by Al Bruno III. It was adapted for audio by Brian Manzi and The Devil's Interval. It was read by Brian Manzi and The Devil's Interval. Podcast theme was by Rachel F. Williams. Night Blogger Season 1 theme was by Josh Bruno. Our unpaid scientific advisor is Adam J. Thaxton. The credits were read by Miss Sherry. Comments? Questions? Email us at ab3 at channelab3.com or follow us on Twitter at channelab3. Please consider supporting the podcast via reoccurring donations of either 99 cents, 4.99, or 9.99 a month via the link on our Anchor FM site. Reviews really help more people find the show. Please consider giving us one at the podcast service of your choice. Thanks for listening.